0: This is a podcast from BBC Studios. BBC Studios. A commercial subsidiary
1: subsidiary
0: of the BBC.
2: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
3: I grew up by the river on my reserve. So I was actually grew up surrounded by trees despite being a Prairie's First Nation person. And we always had animals, we always had dogs and cats around, and I was always surrounded with family.
4: Welcome to the BBC Earth podcast, the podcast that's getting back to its roots. I grew up on the beginning reserve, kind of in the middle of a field.
1: (laughs) And in the back of our house we had a huge hill and there was huge rocks, which we have creation stories about those rocks, and my brothers and I would always play on those rocks and that was always my
4: home, was on the reserve. This episode is about a very specific place that could be anywhere in the world. It's a place that's different for everyone, yet it's a place we all share. This episode is about home.
1: As I got older, we did move around, but that was always my home, was on the reserve.
4: Home can be a place or a family. It can be a familiar language, a shared past, or a culture that unites you with those around you. Sometimes... It's all of those things.
3: Uki Nistoago ki Agano, Gi And the translation for that is hello, my spirit is called Idumsaogasi. I come from Kainai, and my clans are the Mamyoiks and the Agapugax, which is the fish eaters and the many children clans.
1: I'm Tanil. I am from the Kainai Nation and the Bikani Nation. I'm 16 and I'm currently just a student in high school.
4: <laughs> Deandra Bruisedhead and Tanil Shade are First Nations women from the Blackfoot Confederacy, tribes who have been living on the land which is now Alberta in Canada for time immemorial. And there's one animal which sums up home for them.
3: For us as Blackfoot people, everything we did surrounded buffalo, surrounded Ini, that's how you say buffalo and blackfoot that was our economy that was our society our shelter was made out of buffalo hide our clothes our rites of passage was around how the young boys could go hunting for buffalo you know how the girls could make clothes out of the buffalo hide it was our way of life it (laughs) It was was everything it was everything to us
1: They're huge animals. Huge, huge animals. They have huge hooves. They have a hump. I'm sure you've seen pictures of them. (laughs) And there's actually creation stories that we have where the buffalo was the chosen animal, you could say, out of all the other animals. And our creator chose that animal for us. When, you know, colonizers came and settlers came, they obviously didn't have that relationship with the buffalo that we had. They knew that our source of life was the buffalo, so by taking that out
4: it was so much easier for them to just completely wipe us out. The history of the systematic oppression of the First Nations people in Canada is a story that's cruel, brutal and almost incalculably sad. A people who had lived on the plains for 10,000 years, was decimated by disease, forced into reservations, subjugated and assimilated into a culture that was not their own. Blackfoot ceremonies were made illegal. Blackfoot children were taken from their parents. And the animal so central to all aspects of their culture, the buffalo, was slaughtered. Brought from a population of around 30 million to the brink of extinction. A few tiny pockets of buffalo survived, scattered throughout North America on farms and ranches. As the 20th century advanced and conservation efforts picked up speed, numbers slowly recovered. And in 2014, an historic treaty was signed to bring buffalo back to Blackfoot territory once more. Three years later, 16 buffalo were released in Banff National Park, free to roam over lands that hadn't seen buffalo herds for 140 years. And earlier this year, a plan was hatched to pay them a visit.
1: My grandma, my grandma, amethyst, first writer, actually kind of brought up the idea, like, I would love for, you know, taniel and a group of young women mm-hmm. to go see those buffalo, to just see them in the wild, because never, I don't think any of us would have thought that we could see buffalo free roaming, especially in the wild. Every single woman there, you know, had a special connection and worked for these buffalo to be here or watched or helped in the process. It was scary, it was intimidating, because <laughs> like, I've never done an overnight hike like that. Literally in the middle of nowhere in this untouched country.
3: So we got to ride on a wagon. That was pretty cool. It was a little, little rough on the back.
1: <laughs> it was literally just like, I felt like a settler. Yeah, <laughs> it was back like of those being like, in the back of the wagon. Trail wagon. Yeah, like in the <laughs> movies. It was quite the experience riding in the wagon.
3: <laughs> that first day, we began hiking at like...
1: Four, five? Yeah.
3: Someone set the pace really fast. Me, I did. I set the pace really fast. Yeah,
1: And we ended up going about 14K that first day. Yeah. And we overshot where we were supposed to land. (laughs) And so we ended up camping. It was so beautiful, though. We camped right by a little river, and there was a hill. We had our dinner on a little hill, and it was fine. (laughs) We didn't have any tracking devices, so we kind of just had to... Go and find them, really. Mm
3: -hmm. We passed an area where there was a buffalo wallow. So Mm -hmm. a buffalo wallow is where the alpha male... Go kind of into like a little bit of a, of a dip and just kind of like
1: dig up the land with his hooves and roll in it. So there was actually buffalo dung there, and of course, us were all digging with sticks to see how fresh it is. And <laughs> everyone was like digging in the poop to see how fresh it was. And Mariev just grabs a chunk. And um, it was dry. Yeah, it was dry. It was dry. Needless to say, we were very enthusiastic about seeing the buffalo dung. <laughs> It was almost like they were teasing us. That's how we described it. They were just leaving little little hints that they were there. There was a, a little bit of a, an alpine hill,
3: and our, our coordinator was like, well, let's just go up this hill, and we'll, we'll have lunch up there. For me, at, at that point, my family had been going through some hard times recently, so I had an offering that I wanted to make. My brother had told me what to look for, where, where to place it, and i was looking around and i saw it i saw the right area that i wanted to put it and as i saw it all of a sudden i heard mariev yell buffalo
1: buffalo mm-hmm. She looks up and she just, she looks at me and there's tears in her eyes and she puts two little hands above her head to make little buffalo horns and she just starts crying and and I looked in the binoculars and you know they were there and (laughs) I'm gonna start crying again but like in our creation story when the buffalo were taken from us the story was that the buffalo were gonna return from the mountains and that is exactly where we found them in the mountains.
3: To have them out on the landscape, once again, is just us being able to see our spirits, being able to see, hey, we're still Blackfoot. And that is a testimony of our resilience that despite the history, we are still here, they are still
1: here, we're doing this together. Their home, that was the feeling, that was the only thing I could say, that was the only thing I just, their home, and that was. That's it. (laughs) That's all I could say. They were home and and we were home. And And we were home,
4: yeah. It's the best gift we could ask for as Blackfoot people. Throughout this series of the BBC Earth podcast, we've gathered stories from all over the world, from people who make their homes in wildly different places. From the islands of Hawaii to a bustling city in Ethiopia, from the Australian outback to the gentle hills of the English countryside... From jungle to desert and from the plains to the prairie. We asked everyone we spoke to about the sights and sounds and smells of the places they call home. Here's what some of them said. What reminds me most of home is the sound of maple sap dripping into buckets at the end of winter and the beginning of spring. That wonderful plink clink, plink sound because it really shows something about the relationship between people and place. I live in a place which I think of as Maple Nation. Uh, there are more sugar maples here than there are people and I think of them as our leading citizens. They dominate our woods, they they colour our
5: seasons and, and they give us this wonderful gift of, of, of maple syrup.
0: The sound of a wood pigeon That call, it so typifies my parents' garden. I'm from Yorkshire originally, my parents live in Leeds. There's a bunch of birch trees in the area and patients love pottering around the garden. I actually grew up around the world as well as travel around the world for work. And uh, I think home is wherever my family is. That's what's wonderful about a lot of the wildlife that I am very passionate about. It reminds me of the people that I care about. Oh, from now, home for me is in Addis Ababa. Addis Ababa is the capital of Ethiopia. It is the capital of Africa. Do you know the scent of Njera? When I'm landing in from the airport, that's the
2: first scent I get. And it's perfect. You know that you are home.
1: (laughs) I live in the Sonoran Desert, and it's a very special, strange, crazy environment of organisms that can't live anywhere else. And we have a very abundant, small plant called a creosote. When it rains in the Sonoran Desert, creosotes have a sort of greasy wax on their leaves, and it releases an aroma that is a combination of plant and dust and earth, and it's the smell of the desert. And so I would have to say, when I smell a damp creosote, I know that I'm at home.
3: I currently base in Mongolia, in the capital city of Mongolia, which is Ulaanbaatar. For many Mongolians, when we see the felt tent gear, that certainly reminds many Mongolians home. It's a little round white felt tent in the green pasture in the green step. That's how we imagine it. And then around the gear, it's usually livestock and wildlife going on and on. Gear means tent, also it means home.
2: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot,
4: You're listening to the BBC Earth podcast, where we're telling stories of home. There's a photo on the wall of my parents' house. It's me as a baby in the arms of my dad, reaching one pudgy hand out to touch a tiny blue flower. It's called a ceanothus, and it used to grow in a huge bushy shrub up the wall of my parents' house. The photo is a very peaceful one somehow. Me and my dad, a young father and a small baby, lost together in contemplation of a bright indigo puffball of flowers. My parents moved from that house many years ago and they don't have a ceanothus where they live now. But every now and then I spot one, in someone else's garden, and all of a sudden it makes me think of home. When John Day became a father, the meaning of family home changed completely.
0: When you have children, when you start thinking about what a home means for yourself and how to provide one for other people, you lose a certain degree of freedom. We were, we were living a fairly typical itinerant 20s life before then and I had all these kind of vague dreams of going on a grand adventure somewhere and of course overnight that becomes impossible when you have young children and so I suppose I wanted to learn to embrace that to find a way of reconciling myself to staying put.
4: This is John Day. Writer, father, pigeon fancier. He invited us into his Victorian terrace in Leyton, East London.
0: Hello. Welcome.
4: In the hallway is a gigantic map of London, big enough to cover the entire wall.
0: This house used to belong to a taxi driver and he made this map, cut out the pages from an A to Z. And what I like about it is it's not a typical London map because Leighton is right at the centre, so here we are. That's where we are now. That's us here. This is home.
4: Head into the kitchen at the back of the house, and the sound of pigeons begins to take over.
0: I love that sound. I often sit at the kitchen table working and listening to the cooing of pigeons.
4: In the garden, tucked along the right-hand wall, is a pigeon loft, handmade of wood and wire.
0: We're looking at my pigeon loft, which is... Quite a small loft by pigeon fancier standards, although you might not agree. My girlfriend doesn't necessarily agree.
4: John is a pigeon fancier. We try and get some of these out. He breeds them and gives them a home.
0: Come on, lads. Actually, these are the ladies, so these are the hens. Are you going to come out?
4: Pigeons fly directly above, circling through the air over John's house like a helicopter preparing to land.
0: So they've all, you see, they're a bigger group now, they've all joined up. Most of them have. 13, 14, 15, 17, yeah, that's all of them. People get a bit baffled when I invite them around to watch my pigeons fly, but it's there is something amazing. different about it, isn't it? Especially as you should sort of know, know them on the ground and then you see them up there and then they come back. It's magical.
4: John's favourite sport, pigeon racing Involves transporting his flock to far-flung places around the UK Releasing them And letting them find their own way home to roost To train them, John takes them around London with him Setting them loose from points all over the city The stronger their homing urge, the faster they'll return And the more likely you are to win a race
0: Whenever I would leave the house, I would take a basket of pigeons with me and often that involved me going into town, into London and going to the library or if I went to work, I would take a basket of pigeons and release them out the window um, before I came home. Any time I travelled any distance, I thought this is an opportunity to to train them. Um, So there was a period when I was rarely without a basket of pigeons. I'm not sure what my colleagues made of it, but they were kindly unjudgmental. (laughs) To send a bird off to somewhere you've not been to before and wait for it and hope and see it coming out of the sky and land on your roof is a remarkable feeling. I hope to have it for a long time.
4: All the pigeons that fill our skies are descended from wild rock doves. They have a remarkable inbuilt navigation system which allows them to make their way home from thousands of miles away.
0: Pigeons have this unique ability to... Find their ways back to their homes from places that they've never been to before. So it's a very complicated kind of series of navigational models that uh, biologists are now thinking that they use to navigate. I don't think they'll come down yet, they still seem quite key. They certainly have a sun azimuth compass that allows them to orient themselves and they have the ability to detect the Earth's magnetic fields like lots of migratory songbirds can do. And there's also speculation that they can use what's called an olfactory gradient map so they can smell base odours brought by winds of different directions to kind of work out not just where home is but where they've been taken in
4: relation to it. Pigeons can use specific whiffs floating on the breeze of pine forests or rubbish dumps or chocolate factories to figure out their way home. They also make good use of human-made routes and landmarks.
0: They'll use anything to navigate but they do like straight lines and obviously human infrastructure has made many more straight lines be available to them. Once they've kind of established that a route is safe, they will go out of their way to take the same route, even if it's not the most direct route home. So if they're approaching from the south, for instance, they might go all the way round until they've hit what they know to be the safe corridor in. There seem to be these, these interesting parallels between the pigeons' need for home and the idea of making a home and making for home and navigating your way back to it. I used to rescue feral pigeons from the streets when I was a child and then I didn't do that for a long time but then when I moved house with my girlfriend about five years ago to Leighton which is a part of the city I didn't really know very well we had a garden for the first time and I was hanging around at home quite a lot, we had a young child it seemed obvious to me that now was the time to build a pigeon loft in my garden and <laughs> reanimate my old love of these creatures Just give me a whistle I mean it's such a strange feeling to, to move to a new place and even though you've not come very far feeling kind of utterly alienated by that new environment. I suppose one of the things I became struck by was the the connections between the way in which training a pigeon to know it's home, to, to be homed mirrored my own experiences. In order to to sort of train a pigeon to, to begin to f- find its way home, all you have to do is provide a home for it. And in this case, this is a you know it's essentially a shed with a lot of ventilation, some perches for them to stand in, and some nest boxes for when they eventually pair up and nest, usually in their second year.
4: It's time for the pigeons to fly home, if they want to. It
0: makes you notice the sky in a way that I never had before.
4: Home is wherever you hang your hat. We humans seem willing to hang our hats pretty much anywhere. We've made homes for ourselves from the poles to the equator. What other species can count as their homes? Tents in the desert, tree houses in the Indonesian rainforest or igloos on the Alaskan ice fields. But for most animals, this kind of adaptability is rare. Millions of years of evolution has left many creatures superbly adapted to a very specific home habitat. Threaten their home, and you jeopardise their entire way
5: of life. There were estimated numbers of the Sumatran rhino, 750, and through the years, the experts would ratchet that number down, and I clearly recall them being estimated about 300 and then 150 and right now we're down to about 80 animals left anywhere in the world. This is
4: Paul Reinhardt, a keeper at the Cincinnati Zoo in the United I've States. been
5: an animal keeper for I believe 38 years.
4: The Sumatran rhino is perhaps not what you're picturing when I say the word rhino. They're small for a start, about up to your chest and they're covered in a kind of reddish brown hair. And for them, Home is the dense, dark quiet of the Sumatran rainforest.
5: The biggest problem behind their demise is the cutting down of their rainforest homes, mostly for palm oil.
4: Back in the 80s, with the wild herd of Sumatran rhino dwindling fast, an international conservation effort was launched, bringing wild rhinos out of their Sumatran home and into human care in zoos all over the world in order to help them breed.
5: Through a series of really good fortune, we ended up as being determined to receive the first pair to breed in captivity here in the US. We learned a lot about how to care for these animals in a zoo, because honestly, there was not much known about these animals. It's just really not ever been done before. We had the first calves born in over a hundred years.
4: Of the three calves that were born in Cincinnati in the early 2000s, the last one, the baby of the bunch, was named Harapan. Indonesian for hope.
5: After a gestation of about 15 and a half months, Harapan was born. The Sumatran rhino is born with a shaggy coat of hair. Uh, They're also called the hairy rhino. They are cute, they're adorable, and I don't always use that term, adorable. Some say it's a face only a mother can love, but yes, I think they're absolutely adorable. You always call out as you come in the door, hi, hairpin. They squeak, they talk, they whistle. Some people have equated them to whale vocalizations. The Sumatran rhino evolved to be able to communicate over a distance. and. It's a really good way of broadcasting their presence without actually having to come together. The males do a kind of a, a whistle blow. They do this high pitched squeak and then a, a burst of air out through the nostrils. Uh, very unique sounds that remind the keeper that you're working for them and be nice if you hurried up.
4: Fast forward eight years, and the Sumatran rhino breeding programme has been a moderate success. The situation at home in Sumatra, however, was worse than ever. Poachers kept poaching. Foresters kept logging. Numbers continued to plummet. Today, the Sumatran rhino is thought to be extinct in the wild, and in captivity, there are around 80 animals left. If they are to rally, to come back from the brink of extinction... All those animals need to be in the same place.
5: He ended up being the last Sumatran rhino, not only here in the US, but outside of their country of origin. He wouldn't be living with other Sumatran rhino here, so he would be by himself here in Cincinnati. So the decision was made to move him to Sumatra.
4: It was time for Harapan to go home.
5: He's in a crate, loaded onto a truck, driven to Columbus, Ohio. That's about two hours' drive, and then we start our air journey to Chicago. Columbus to Chicago. Two and a half hours, two hours maybe. We do not drug rhinos to move them. He is fully awake. Chicago to Anchorage, Alaska. There are times when he would get a little bit rambunctious. Asking, in other words, when do we get out of here, that sort of thing, but he was calm. Yeah, he was really good. Anchorage to Hong Kong. Sitting out on the tarmac with a rhino, everybody wants to see what's in that crate. So you have to be kind of patient with people that are around and want to take pictures. Hong Kong to Jakarta, Indonesia. He came off the plane, loaded him on a truck, and a police escort from the airport to a ferry. He, at this point, was a well-traveled rhino, three or four hours on the ferry to his destination on Sumatra. Close to two days from the time we loaded him and the time we um, opened up the crate in his new home at SRS. After he came out of the crate, there was good fresh food right there for him. I went in and I kind of reassured him that he still got some of his favorite companions around him if I could maybe be so bold. It's always hot and humid and uh, good rhino weather for the rest of his life. Moving him to Sumatra would provide him the opportunity to learn how to be a a true rhino, contribute to the future of these animals.
4: For Paul, who saw Harapan born and raised him for eight years, knowing he was home was bittersweet.
5: It was that last moment when we were getting ready to leave that probably was the worst part because uh, he was on his own. I told him to to behave and... uh, uh, gave him a quick hug around the neck and started to come back home. You often try to keep your emotions in check. I didn't weep for him. I didn't break down or anything like that. It was just a really great moment. Ultimately, it was it was the right decision to make. On my phone, when I receive a text message, the alert is Harapan that whistle blow. <laughs> I hear it on my phone, so it's a nice reminder of some of our time together and for me it's a reminder of how fortunate I've been to to be part of this chapter in rhino conservation. Although those numbers have continued to ratchet down, I am forever an optimist, so I believe it's not too late. We can increase their numbers in human care so that ultimately their offspring can live and procreate in the wild.
4: You've been listening to the BBC Earth podcast. Stories were produced by me, Emily Knight, and Eliza Lomas. For more animals, nature and science from BBC Earth, sign up to our newsletter at bbcearth.com slash newsletter. Subscribe and next week we'll be bringing people and animals together, over vast distances and across borders with stories of unity.
2: Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ,